depending on how long you take care of somebody, really look at what that's doing to you. Make a point to practice self-care. It's just, it's just really, really terrible what it's done. Hi, I'm Bobby. I was a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, for seven years. I'm now a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and a frequent speaker at caregiving conferences and webinars. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might, we just might share a laugh or two, which we know is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. I won't forget the wine for you, and I won't forget the beer for me. Yeah. I bet. So we've talked a number of times about the impact on family and the relationships within family and the family dynamics and how changes in relationships can and often occur, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Yes, we've we've had um, examples of both of that, uh, you know, with the people that we've invited on our show. We've had families come together beautifully, and we've also had families that are torn apart. And that brings us to today's guest. She majored in journalism at the University of North Carolina and embarked on a career as a TV producer in advertising copyright. She and her MD sister co-wrote a chronicle of their struggle to share elder care from opposite coasts in opposing mindsets over 13 years, where sisterly love changed to sisterly shove. Please welcome to the show a fellow Alls author and co-author of the book Sisterly Shaw, Malia Klein. Hi. Hi, Malia. Hi, nice to be here. I'm so glad to have an opportunity to talk to you about these uh, tenuous and often scary uh, family relationships. So you not only were, you know, working with your sister to figure this out, but you were on opposite coasts. And that creates its own challenges or creative opportunities, <laughs> is what I like to call them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at my family, um, I was living in North Carolina, and that's where we grew up. And my sister lives in California. And, um, you know, I won't say there's a bicoastal difference in mindset, but that could play a role in it. You never know. <laughs> but um, the truth of my siblings, we also have two uh, brothers, is that other than other than me, the other three of them ran from the South as fast as they could. You know, they thought that the South was a little bit backward and uh, all these horrible stereotypes that I don't believe. But um, anyway, so they moved to Boston, Milwaukee, and my sister in California. So who knows that the divide in how far apart we were probably contribute to how far our how far apart our mental view of the world was, who knows? But I think a lot of people experience that these days because we're all separated. Yeah. I'm a native New Yorker and the snows like the ones we just had recently drove most of my family to Florida. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. Nobody lives on the family farm anymore, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. There's no such thing as the homestead, right? That this that's is the right. place you go back to. Uh, and, yeah, and that's as we were that's up, sad. The home place was already crumbling. You know, we would go there when we were children, and uh, down in 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 rural North Carolina, and 
tell you what, that home place was already starting to show its age even then. <laughs> so you were the hands-on caregiver? Um, for a short period of time. And then um, my sister, I, I was the hands-on caregiver for about five years. And by hands-on, I mean, um, my father did not live with me, but I you know, took responsibility for his care. He uh, lived in a, an Alzheimer's assisted living facility. Um, but uh, what happened with us is because of our opposing views of quality of life and care and all of that, my sister actually elder napped him from a long-term memory care facility where I had him in North Carolina and took him to California where she proceeded to care for him. She was a doctor. She quit practicing medicine. She cared for him 24-7 single-handedly for more than seven years. I want to go back for just a second. Okay. So first, your mom was diagnosed with uh, cancer, pancreatic correct? cancer. Now, was that first? Yes, that did come first. I'll try to get the chronology down for you. She was diagnosed. Um, she lived uh, in, in, in North Carolina, so I became responsible. She was given three to six months to live, so it was a short range window. That was uh, that that was just blindsided me that you know that a person could clearly people pass away instantly a lot of the time, but three to six months was tough. So I had caregivers who came in to help her with all the various things. It's a horrible disease and there are a lot of medical things that need to be done. So that was when my relationship with my sister started crumbling. She, she did not believe I made the best decision in the people who were coming in to take care of my mom, that she was a doctor, she could do a better job, which was probably true. She basically First thing, like you say, before my dad's situation, my dad would, had dementia at that point. So her death would mean that he would be left alone. So that's, that, that's kind of what I was asking about. So he was actually diagnosed before your mom was diagnosed with cancer. So she was your dad's caregiver. Our, our dad's care, our dad's caregiver, um, probably for three years before she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So um, okay. it was... You know, it was, it was difficult, but then all of a sudden the children were going to have to take over because she was going to be gone in three to six months. Right. So she was setting the example for you to follow, right? Taking care of your dad. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and she was a tough act to follow. I have to, I have to tell you that she was so devoted to him. And, um, you know, I would continually, I knew the toll it was taking on her. And there were a couple of times when you know, he was fairly irrational. Um, he would do things like take a, take apart the garage door opener. So her car would be stuck in the garage mm -hmm. and not know how to put it back together. Um, one time I was, I was afraid that he had punched her because she had bruises on her face. So she, she stuck it in there. I was like, you know, can you just do adult daycare for a day a week or a couple of days a week? But she was so loyal to this man that she had been married to forever that she would not consider anybody else taking care of him but her. Okay, so you basically come from an example as far as the caregiving. Exactly. I find it interesting that you had both in a facility care, home care, which uh, your sister took over. And we'd like to make it very clear that either choice is right 
for various circumstances. And what you decide today may very well change tomorrow, like everything else that has to do with dementia. That's absolutely true. That it impacted your relationship with your sister. But then you came together to write this book. So I imagine there was some healing in there too. I don't know how much of the conflict you're comfortable sharing, but help our listeners who are going through something like that. Um, we did, um, you know, butt heads, I'll say, um, frequently during the process. Um, when my mom was sick and she took her from the care I had set up for her in uh, North Carolina to her home, uh, she went to extraordinary measures since she was a doctor. It was a continual series of uh, trying to save her, um, having medical procedures done that, you know, her the physicians did not want to do. So there was a lot of, a lot of that. Um, so um, I think it's a little bit of a different situation just for a lot of other siblings is because one of you may not be a doctor. So that, you know, that puts the one who doesn't have all the medical knowledge in a position of uh, constantly being second guessed. So um, that was one aspect of it. But you know, she just thought she could do it better herself. And actually, you know, from what I've said about my mom, my mom thought she could do it better herself, even though she wasn't a doctor. So you've got this example that was set of a mother that was totally self-sacrificial. And then my sister, who I guess really followed more of our mother's model than I did. So. Well, I have to say, when I was a caregiver, you know, for seven years, it was for Mike's dad. And he was as he calls it, the caregiver's caregiver, but he went to work every day to support us so I could devote my time to take care of his father. And I have to tell you, I felt that I was, I did it better than anybody else could too. I think when you're living with it 24-7, whether it's in your home or you're the one that's making the decisions for people in a care facility, your focus is laser to that care and all of the things that are involved in it. And it's really hard to let go of any part of it, as Mike can tell you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. And um, I, I see that perspective. And I do think for a lot of people, it'll depend on what stage of life they're in and what other family responsibilities they have. Um, the difference, again, between my sister and I were, was that her daughter was going into, was in high school, going about to go away from to college. My daughter was eight years old, you know, dealing with uh, dealing with my dad, who would not get in a car, would not cooperate. You know, how was I going to take her to soccer when he wouldn't get in the car and I couldn't leave him alone? So my sister was in a little better position um, because her children were older. But I think that's another thing that families have to evaluate and look at is where are you in life? You know, what are your right. other responsibilities? And that's that's a tough one. I mean, how do you make a choice between a parent and a child? You know, giving the child what they need and what they demand and and the parent. So that's that's a tough one. Yeah, I think they call that. Well, I don't think I know they call that the sandwich. Okay. Right. Where you've got the elder that you're taking care of and the um, young one that you're taking care of and trying to do that balance. And it's tough. It's extremely tough. And people don't right. understand that. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I talk about when I'm doing a presentation and, you know, kind of introducing care to people who are new to it, 
uh, and putting that care team together is talk about the various skill sets in the families. And you're right, most people don't have a doctor in the family, or many people don't. And not everybody should be a hands-on caregiver, either because of you know their personality or the needs of the person that they're caring for. So you kind of look at family members to say, okay, I can take care of this part, you take care of that part, and and then share some of that responsibility. Yeah, and, and that is the ideal situation. It's like, for example, of my sister realizing that she was, um, you know, a more devoted and knowledgeable caregiver. Maybe she did that part of it and I did the financial part of it. I mean, that would have made more logical sense. And the other part of it was we had two brothers who took no role at all. So should we have, you know, encouraged them to take on different roles? Um, but again, it's like you're hit with this thing and you scramble. I mean, you just, you just don't know what to do. You, you know, somebody's across the country. It's hard to even um, collaborate very closely and you both got your own family. So that I don't, I think that the, the sharing of duties is the, the ideal situation, and that's what people should strive for. Um, and that means by coastal yeah, is extremely -coastal. difficult. Yeah, the by coastal was a was a rough thing. But you know, the other thing too is is we never thought ahead, and that's another thing to do more planning than we did. You know, we should have looked at the fact that we're all four in different parts of the country. And something inevitably is going to happen to our parents. And, you know, people told us, you know, you could have avoided this 13 years of sisterly shove by talking to your parents when they were in their 60s about um, what they would want us to do if they got dementia. That ran in my father's family, you know, of he and his uh, four, four siblings, only one did not get dementia in their 80s. And writing was on the wall, you know, and we all ignored it. You're, you're certainly not alone in that. And, and one of my missions is, you know, I, I developed a program called Prepare to Care with every adult needs to know about Alzheimer's and dementia before and after it strikes home. And it's not only, you know, looking at caring for your parents with the rapid growth of all different kinds of dementia including early onset, people in their sandwich generation who are raising children and going to work need to start planning for taking care of their spouse and their brothers and sisters. This is something that none of us should um, say, well, I've got plenty of time because we're all good until we're not. Exactly. And, you know, honestly, that really resonates with me now because my, my sister and my brothers and I have not done any of that. You know, it's been, I guess it's been tradition in our family that we can't really think about dying and we can't, heaven forbid, talk about death out loud. I don't know if that's something about being raised in the South, if it's, you know, politeness, no. you know, what, <laughs> what is it? I mean, or is it, or is it, you know, common to everybody? Now, on the other hand, my husband's parents told him and his siblings in no uncertain certain terms, there are also four of them, what they wanted to happen when they got old. No mm -hmm. ifs, ands, or buts. They said, if we become a burden to you, please let us go. It was as simple as that, and they never had to fight about anything. Well, one of the things we've done is we've took all that 
planning, decision-making, all that kind of stuff out of our kids' hands. We have a plan all set up. So the four kids don't have to debate or discuss what mom wanted or what dad wanted because it's all laid out. It's in writing and, and the whole bit in, in, a, in the plan. What's supposed to happen to this? What's supposed to happen to that? We actually did that well before we became the caregivers but, uh, and, and working with caregivers. As, as soon as you add more than one person in the decision-making process, the possibility of uh, discussion, let's say, um, happens. And the more people you add, the more discussion there is. I was in my doctor's office not too long ago. And one of the things um, the nurse asked is, do I have a living will? And I said to her, do you only ask that of old people? And <laughs> she said, no, we ask that of everybody because, you know, you, you could be in a car accident. You know, there are many things that could that could make you disabled. So it, it's not necessarily dementia care. And that's why people need to start thinking about it is as soon as they they become an adult and think about things like power of attorney, think about things, long-term care insurance, because the younger you are, when you get that, the less expensive it's going to be. Yeah. All that's, all that's extremely good to keep in mind. Um, so Maria, and, get it in, get it, get your plan in order. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just wish there was a way. I mean, all of that are the practical sides of human beings. If we could just divorce ourselves from the emotional side. That's hard. The, uh, the thing that, uh, that I found with my sister is we just saw the world differently. And I'll give you an example. She, she thought our healthcare system considered old people to be disposable. So our dad was stationed in Greenland during World War II. And when Diane was a teenager, he told her something that she never forgot. Uh, when the indigenous people that he worked with in the army in Greenland, the Eskimos is what they called them then, could no longer keep up with the tribe, they left them out on an ice floe to freeze to death. Mm -hmm. She talked for weeks about how that was murder. And as he slipped farther and farther into dementia, I truly believe she never forgot that. And she was determined not to let anyone in any healthcare position leave him out in the cold to freeze. So, I mean, that's a position that's a mindset that is just tough to go up against, you know, yeah. and I'm practical, I'm a realist, you know, because she took that Hippocratic oath, I guess, <laughs> she um, just saw it differently. And she also saw hospitalizations differently for me. He had a broken pelvis and two heart attacks. He had a suspected subdural hematoma and two broken hips and a broken femur. And every time she would, she made it her mission to keep somebody from putting him out on an ice floe because he was damaged. So, I mean, it was just, boy, I tell you what, that that is an attitude in your sibling that is tough to go up against. Well, yeah, I can see where it, it would be. And it, it, it kind of brings us back to some of the discussions that were happening around COVID, where people were suggesting that, that grandparents could put themselves at risk in order to save their grandchildren. So there is that mindset out in the world that, you know, put them out on the ice bowl. They've lived long enough. Um, and at my age, I kind of think, oh, I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I can see the cold weather coming from here. <laughs> so anyway. after 
So after you got over the hump and the gr grieving process, how was it that you and your sister came together to write Sisterly Shove? And what was that process? How was that process? Um, it was interesting. We actually started the process while she was still caring for my dad. And honestly, I had, had the idea to do it because I thought, you know, she needs something else to do, whether it's, you know, through the experiences and writing about them and, you know, almost on a daily basis, so much journaling or something that would at least give her something to hold on to beside the bringing him food and making sure he was comfortable and all that. So I encouraged her to start writing this story. And um, what it ended up being was that we alternated chapters. Like I said, we saw everything differently. So um, I think it was sort of therapy for her, partly, you know, just me pushing her to, because I was the writer, I was a writer right. um, and she was a doctor. So it, it took, it was a stretch for her to do it, but ultimately I think she got a lot out of it. And that probably was a lot of the process of us coming together to, uh, to talk about it, to put our words down, her changing my words, me changing her words, somehow that got us to a middle ground, you know, so we weren't so, um, so uh, combative with each other, I guess is the best way to put it. That, you know, that message in itself about, you know, putting your thoughts on paper and sharing them with family members is an excellent idea, even if they're not looking to publish a book, if they can, if they can see read it, you know, without, you know, the face-to-face -face emotion that might be taken as a challenge and find their way back to each other. That That's a very valuable um, tip that's coming out of your being with us today. The, the When you get in the weeds of caregiving, I mean, um, this, this sounds, you know, kind of really, really out there, but um, my sister did not believe in adult disposable underwear at all. She thought that my father would be infantized <laughs> by it and, um, you know, preferred that he go commando. And, you know, I mean, it's just just uh, those kind of perceptions uh, when, when among siblings is how do you get over them? You know, I mean, that's a tiny little factor in the whole thing. And it's not very it's not very savory to talk about it, but it was it was a big issue. Now, she's, she was the one that was taking care of him at the time, and, and she was comfortable with dealing with that issue. Why was it an issue for you? I guess I just thought it was just beyond the pale that you would continually <laughs> deal with the accidents that occurred and I don't know. And, you know, I would I went out there and relieved her as much as I could and that oh, was you had to deal with it. <laughs> and I had to deal with it. So now this this wild idea was you know slapped right in my lap. <laughs> anyway, but you know, I, I it's uh just amazing how many differences differences there are among people who are raised by the same parents. So uh, we did come, we never came to blows. We did come back together and the, the writing of uh, our, our individual perceptions and alternate, alternating chapters about that were, uh, were helpful. Um, and my brothers, I don't, you know, I don't know how they feel about it even today. 
I went eight years without seeing one of them. And uh, he's, a, he's a doctor as well. But I don't, you know, I still don't know how he felt about it. He, I think they just divorced themselves from it being their responsibility, honestly. Risk avoidance. Yeah, exactly. You know, the main thing, though, with my sister is that I see now, and again, this relates to COVID, is, you know, we're all being forced to be socially isolated. And I mean, literally, my sister was socially isolated for seven, more than seven years. And unfortunately, as I mentioned before, um, my father and his siblings got dementia when they were in their mid-80s. And my sister is now losing her memory at 66. Yeah, that's it. I really think the social isolation of totally devoting yourself to one person's care, being there with you all day, never getting respite care, never bringing in caregivers. Boy, it just had a dramatic effect on her her mental state. So anyway, that's another thing I think for people to keep in mind on the how long you take care of somebody, really look at what that's doing to you and make a point to practice self-care. It's just, it's just really, really terrible what it's done. So now that the the book has been published and it's been out, what, a couple of years now, right? Mm -hmm. So have your sister and you, have you done any events together with the book? Right now, she remembers so little about writing the book that you, uh, we can't we can't do that. So it's it's a it's a weird position to be in. Yeah. Well, I'd, you know, we like to laugh when we think laughter is the best medicine. Mm-hmm. And you are also a humor writer. Right. Exactly. And you have Malia Mania. Is a humor blog, correct? Yes, it's it's a grammar, basically about grammar, but it um, it's definitely got a snarky tone about it. <laughs> yes, it does. I was looking at it last night. So, um, real quickly before we go, how about you talk how people can access your your blog okay. and maybe get a chuckle in their life? Malia Mania is a blogspot blog, so um, it tries to look at grammar things, and and honestly, it. I see things all the time that drive me crazy. Like now people put commas outside of quotation marks all the time. I see that. And that makes me crazy. You know, they're, they're, they're funny blogs about that give uh, weird titles to various, I mean, let's face it. Grammar is pretty uncool and pedantic. The blog tries to make you have fun about it instead of just, you know, feeling like you're in English class. (laughs) Well, just wanted to throw that out there so our listeners maybe can get something a little a little light. Uh, We deal with a lot of heavy topics and we deal with a lot of heaviness with caregiving. And my goodness, Malia, thank you so much. You're welcome. And if you for being on the show, if uh, anyone who reads Sisterly Shove, which is sisterlyshove.com, will see that it's snarky too. It's got a lot of uh, humor in it. A lot of you know, trying to take a like a, a depressing, awful situation and seeing it from my my mind, which is a scary place to be sometimes. <laughs> well, we'll certainly put links to that on the on the show website. Thank you so much for being on board and uh, talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Malia. I appreciate the work you guys do. It's really, really meaningful and makes a difference. So thank you so much. You're so very welcome. And thank you again for being part of the show. You're welcome.
my takeaways was, again, different family members have different skill sets and to use them to the best advantage for both you and the person in care. Yes, the prepare to care is just so, so very, very important. And the sooner you get that, get that going, and we've sent it at least 40 times out of 56 or 57 episodes, that preparing is the best way to go about this. You can find more information about Malia on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.